Thanks for listening to Porchlight Music Theater's WPMT. If you love classic musicals, why not check out Porchlight's Sondheim at 90 Roundtable, our discussion series focusing on the complete works of Stephen Sondheim, with me, Porchlight Artistic Director Michael Weber. I've had a great time discussing all of the musicals of Sondheim's incredible career with stars from Chicago theater, Broadway, and beyond weekly throughout Sondheim's 90th birthday year. Listen today to Sondheim at 90 Roundtable for a behind-the-scenes deep dive into the mind, the music, and the writing methods of one of music theater's greatest composers. Available right here on your favorite podcast platform. Search for Sondheim at 90 Roundtable or visit porchlightmusictheater.org for more information. Hi, I'm Michael Weber, Artistic Director of Chicago's Porchlight Music Theater. Today is another special edition of Classic Musicals from the Golden Age of Radio with our special guest, multi-award-winning actor, director, teacher, and playwright Tom Mueller, whose written works include theatrical adaptations of The Golem, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lowell, and his original story, Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol, which has been a triumph as a novella, as well as on the stage and radio. His prolific work as an actor includes seven seasons and over 400 performances as Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol at the Goodman Theater, and he's one of the most knowledgeable authorities I know on the canon of classic horror films from Universal Studios. Hello, Tom. Michael, thank you. Dan, that's a really nice introduction. Oh, but I, I think I have to take second chair to you as far as as far as being a horror movie nerd. I think you know a lot more detail than I do. <laughs> well, we'll just both agree that we're nerds. Okay. <laughs> right. Debuting August 12th, 1943, Universal Studios film remake of Phantom of the Opera was a Technicolor triumph on its own terms, even as it wrestled with the looming shadow of the studio's landmark 1925 version starring the great Lon Chaney. Here featuring lauded actor and teacher Claude Rains, who made his American film debut as Universal's The Invisible Man in 1933, the luxurious production, the first sound adaptation of the story, heavily exploited the musical opportunities in the property with the casting of singing actors Susanna Foster and Nelson Eddy. Featuring numerous production numbers alongside the Grand Gigognol Foundation of the Story, 1943's Phantom of the Opera was a fascinating addition to the list of classic universal horror creations. Uh, you know, I when I went back and and re-watched it, Tom, I, I was so surprised how much I enjoyed it from what I remembered uh, people seem to think about this particular film adaptation. What tell us a little about about what was going on at Universal? studios at this time in 1943. Okay, 1943, they had, uh, the studio had changed ownership. Uh, James Whale had bankrupted the studio with uh, his production of Showboat and uh, the Lemleys, Carl Lemley and his, uh, his son were out. Uh, they are the people that created the universe, the uh, wonderful golden age of universal horror films with Frankenstein and Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein and and uh, Invisible Man. And they had uh, James Whale on a five year contract 
1936, uh, he directed Bride of Frankenstein and, and Showboat. And uh, uh, the studio's um, uh, stockbrokers insisted that instead of uh, taking a chance that the studio borrow the money to uh, produce Showboat, Mm -hmm. And uh, the James Whale's production went three hundred thousand over uh, for the budget. Wow. Uh, the uh, people that held the loan called it, and uh, the Lemleys were out in the cold. Uh, so the studio had been run by this this uh, other company for a while, and um, they realized they had this wonderful cash cow of the uh, Universal monster films. Mm -hmm. And so in the uh, 40s, they started recycling them. And one of the first things that they did was uh, an, a production called Man Made Monster uh, with Lon Chaney Jr. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was his first horror film and it was directed by uh, George Wagoner who, uh, and it was, it was a big hit. And then immediately after that, the two of them did The Wolfman together. Mm -hmm. And that was that that was uh, one of the major uh, uh, triumphs of the of the uh, second wave of Universal horror films. Mm -hmm. And after and it made a ton of money. It was, and it's actually a really really good movie, right. written by uh, Kurt Siodmak and and uh, starring again Claude Rains mm -hmm. and Maria Uspenskaya and Bella Lugosi. Uh, and on this, and it made a ton of money. So on the success of that, George Wagoner uh, became a producer and was looking at other properties. And uh, Universal had had uh, Phantom of the Opera, and they hadn't hadn't been done as a sound movie yet. Mm -hmm. And Universal was just starting. This was like their first Technicolor movie, or or very early in their Technicolor mm -hmm. process. They right. were the one of the last studios to do Technicolor. Uh, so. Uh, uh, he produced this this new version of Phantom of the Opera. And it's safe to say that, I mean, you know, you're getting into the 40s and and what did, did World War II play something, you know, play a role? Hell yeah, hell yeah. Uh, there was a limitation on what they could spend on sets. Mm -hmm. There was like a $10,000 limitation on what they could spend on sets. And Universal already owned an opera house set that they built for the Lon Chaney movie. Right. So they didn't have to spend any money on that. So right. they were able to uh, reuse that set. Right. So now the 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 Chaney that uh, you're talking about is that you were talking about with the Wolfman is Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Sr. though was a whole other... Situation. Oh, hell yeah. And he was a genius. He was uh, uh, one of the big stars of silent movies, uh, uh, always made a point of transforming his appearance. Uh, he was a makeup artist, transforming his appearance hugely. Uh, his two, two biggest hits were Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, for which Universal built their um, uh, facade of Notre Dame, yeah. which uh, uh, was there for many years. And, and then uh, they were looking for another hit that they could do. And Carl Lemley, uh, allegedly ran into Gaston Leroux in Paris and Gaston Leroux passed him a copy of Phantom of the Opera, the novel, which had been written in 1911. And Carl Lemley allegedly read it overnight and said, oh, we must do this with Lon Chaney and, and uh, bought the rights. And um, uh, that's, uh, that's allegedly the story of how Phantom of the Opera happened with Chaney. And Cheney's, uh, Cheney, known, of course, as the man of a thousand faces, 
uh, devises his own makeup. This is this is sort of still at the time period when actors like in the theater would apply their own makeup. They didn't really have makeup artists. Right. It was just starting to happen. Like shortly after this movie, uh, uh, a couple of makeup artists started to come in. Uh, uh, Chambers was one of them. I forget his first name. Uh, And then of course, Jack Pierce Mm -hmm. uh, with, with um, uh, Universal. Um, I think, I think the first monster movie that Pierce did was uh, Man Who Laughs. Right. Uh, based Conrad right Veit. with Conrad Veidt, yeah, yeah. Uh, with this wonderful face that he created that eventually became the Joker. Mm-hmm. So, but Lon Chaney's makeup for Phantom of the Opera had some specific tricks that we we know some of them now. Some of the things that he did to his face, but a lot of it still remains a secret. Well, actually, uh, there's been some research done on it lately. Uh, um, uh, some of the modern makeup artists went through uh, the old techniques and, and uh, materials available to Lon Chaney. And they kind of debunked some of the uh, things that, you know, people were talking about Chaney putting fish hooks in his nose. Uh, and uh, that's probably not what he did. He probably did that with a piece of silk uh, that was glued under his nose and then was actually glued up his forehead to lift his nose to give him. He was working for a, a, an appearance of a skull. Mm-hmm. which is what Gaston LaRue describes in, in the original Phantom, uh, that this man had the face of a, of a skull with no nose and the black circles of the eyes. And, and this was uh, terrifying. And um, so Cheney was trying to do that. And he used putty to build up his cheekbones. He uh, used paint to hollow out his eyes and uh, uh, to make his eyes these black circles. He lifted his nose with um, uh, silk uh, and uh, he, he wore uh, false teeth, and and one of the false teeth appliances did have little wire things that stuck out that pulled his mouth down. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he didn't uh, stick fish hooks in his nose. Right. Uh, that's that's a legend. So it, come 1943, and we're looking to do a remake of this classic film. How do we arrive at at a different Phantom? Uh, we've got we've got Claude Rains. We don't have Lon Chaney. We don't even have Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, how how do we arrive at this particular casting? Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. I think uh, they were spending so much money on Technicolor, they wanted to make sure that they were going to get their investment back. Mm-hmm. So they made it as palatable as they could. Gaston LaRue's story and and Lon Chaney's movie is is pretty faithful to the story. It's about a hugely disfigured madman who uh, lives under the Paris opera. He's a genius. Uh, and and it's it's basically Beauty and the Beast. Uh, uh, and uh, he falls in love with a young singer and there's this back and forth with her and these sort of uh, very melodramatic, uh, very purple uh, negotiations between the two of them. Uh, and at the end, he sacrifices himself for love. Uh, so that's that's basically the novel. Um, and so Cheney's version is very faithful to that. But I think that whoever wrote the script for the, uh, the 43 Phantom uh, pretty much wrote a new story. Mm-hmm. And the only things that they kept were that there was this guy that lived in the Paris Opera House that uh, called himself the Opera Ghost. And he and uh, was in love with a young singer and he made the chandelier fall to uh, uh, which is based on a real incident, mm-hmm. which happened in 1896. Um, uh, the counterweight 
from the chandelier actually did fall into the audience. You know, yeah. counterweight is, is uh, you know, about the size I would imagine of a bucket or a barrel. Sure. Uh, so it probably killed some people, but it wasn't as bad as the entire chandelier coming down. Yeah. And my understanding was that they were originally attempting to get Boris Karloff to, to play the Phantom because they were trying to cash in on a, certainly his relationship with Universal for playing the Frankenstein monster and playing the mummy. Um, but there was, for some reason, they were not able to secure Karloff. Was he doing or, arsenic and old lace by this time? Uh, he would have been doing that on Broadway, but he still had done some films, I know, around this time. He, was still, he, he still was able to get out to do a few things. But um, that is who they had hoped. And then they ended up going with, uh, with Claude Rains. Yeah, which I heard that... I heard that uh, 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 Broderick Crawford was considered yeah. in an early version of the script, and also uh, uh, Charles Lawton, right, was considered. And Charles Lawton had been trained by Claude Rains uh -huh. uh, in in London. And having just recently done the Hunchback of Notre Dame, they probably were trying to make the connection between Charles Lawton and and Lon Chaney at that time. Um, but it's interesting that we also, you know, arrive with. Claude Rains playing another role in which a majority of the film, his face is covered from the audience, much like they had done with him in The Invisible Man, mm -hmm. so that that beautiful voice, Wonderful was, voice. was the leading uh, character for him in terms of how he, uh, he, he, he moved about. And of course, right. this, this rendition of it has an enormous amount of music. Naturally, yeah. the first version was a silent, and this, this has more music. So it's it's a lot of opera and and a little phantom and a little bit of phantom and, yeah. and a lot of Nelson Eddy. Yeah, but uh, Susanna Foster though, man, what a voice! She's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah, she was a a, a real uh, find for them, and I know that they were trying to build up uh, a, a career for her, uh, and it didn't really go well for her after this. And uh, don't know why. Fairly well, I don't know. I think it was just like so many of the classical singers who they tried to build careers for, uh, Deanna Durbin and people. They wanted Deanna Durbin, who was right. the big, big uh, moneymaker at Universal at this time before Abbott and Costello, or around this time Abbott and Costello were really taking off, but they still had Deanna Durbin and she turned it down. So they ended up finding Susanna Foster, who was a new talent. Um, yeah, Deanna Durbin uh, allegedly turned it down because she didn't want to step into Jeanette McDonald's shoes as, as a co-star with Nelson Eddy. She had really admired Jeanette McDonald mm -hmm. and she didn't want to uh, supersede her. Right. Well, it gave a great career boost to Susanna Foster. Why don't we give a listen to the show now uh, and then we'll come back on the opposite end and, 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 and talk a little bit more. So here on the September 13th, 1943 episode of the Lux Radio Theater from the film cast are Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster and Edgar Barrier with Basil Rathbone as the Phantom of the Opera. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Basil Rathbone in The Phantom of the Opera with Edgar Barrier. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. A Broadway first night... 
thrills the few hundred people who can enjoy the play. A Hollywood premiere is exciting for the few thousands who gather to see the stars. But opening night in the Lux Radio Theater belongs to the millions. The millions in American homes and camps from coast to coast. And it belongs to our boys in uniform beyond the seas who join us for the first performance of our tenth season. The real adventure is not in the lights or the crowds, but in the historic privileges of the theater, in hearing a famous star score again in a brand new role, and in the joy of discovering a new star. All that is yours tonight when we present Nelson Eddy and Susanna Foster in their new Universal Technicolor success, The Phantom of the Opera. And with them, in one of the theater's most interesting parts, we bring you Basil Rathbone. It's the first of a big parade of stars and plays that will challenge your attention and our ingenuity. Tonight's play has the thrill of mystery, the gaiety of comedy, and to stop everything else, one of the great singing voices of our day, the romantic baritone of Nelson Eddy. And if that isn't the right way to start the Lux Radio Theater off on another season, I don't know how to find it. We hope to make this season the best in our history, and we're counting on you to help us make it the best. By help, I don't mean just buying Lux toilet soap. I, I think you'll do that anyway, because you know how good it is. But backstage in this theater, we need your help in selecting plays. We want you to tell us what stars you'd like to hear. Everybody has a personal preference, and you give all the orders for our command performances. Your loyalty to Lux toilet soap has kept this curtain going up for nine years. Your award has been a fine product and the finest plays and stars we could discover. And now, the thrill of another opening night as the curtain rises on the first act of The Phantom of the Opera, starring Nelson Eddy as Anatole, Susanna Foster as Christine, and Basil Rathbun as Claudin, with Edgar Barrier as Raoul. <laughs> In the year 1880, the old Paris opera stood like a giant torch in the heart of the city. A thousand windows ablaze with light. But there were shadows, too. Shadows that flitted high in the gallery over the great stage. Shadows that lingered in the sub-cellars far beneath the street, where the black sewers of Paris ran sluggishly in the dark. But we were not concerned with these things, or so we thought at the time. We of the opera knew only the light of the dressing rooms. The bright gaiety of the stage. I suppose it all began the night we sang Martha. The house was crowded, enthusiastic. There were no shadows for us that night. Je voudrais, madame, mes chers amis, ce qui pourrait remplir la vie d'un tel immense plaisir. Vous verrez bien que la raison pour la gaieté de nos chansons, si pleine d'emprunt, de joyeux refrain, c'est là le parterre. Allons, vivons, vivons les promis d'amis, chantons, 
No, there was no warning that night. No hint of the strange things that were about to happen. But I noticed at the finale that Christine was not on stage for the curtain call. Christine Dubois, who sang the role of Nancy. It was not like her to miss the finale of the act. Stage when the curtain had fallen, I saw Christine hurrying to her dressing room. Christine, Christine, wait. Yes, not at all. What is it? What happened to you? You weren't on stage. Why, I... You weren't ill, were you? Oh, oh, no, no. You're all right? You're sure? Of course, not at all. Do I look all right? Oh, you look lovely. What happened? Well, I had a visitor. Somebody wanted to see me. Oh? Mademoiselle Dubois. Oh, good evening, maestro. Mademoiselle. I understand that you were entertaining a gentleman backstage during a performance. Is that true? Yes, maestro. You are not the greatest soprano in the world, mademoiselle. Not yet. So you will please not take liberties. See me later in my office. Yes, maestro. Anatole, what will he do? Don't worry. He's just barking again. Who uh, was the gentleman? Well, he... He's an old friend of mine. But not so very old. <laughs> no. He's Inspector Dobert, the Sûreté. Inspector? You mean a policeman? Well, he's not an ordinary policeman. Oh, does he sing? <laughs> no. He's a graduate of the military academy at Sancer. How much does this man mean to you? Well, I, I'm not sure. Christine, it, it's not like me to preach. But someday you'll have to choose between your career and what's called a normal life. You can't do justice to both. I think you'll find that music has its compensations. In other words, you don't think I ought to have supper tonight with Raoul? Um, no. But with you on it all, that would be all right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we'll see. There was another man that night who missed Christine's appearance during the finale. His name was Eric Claudin, a violinist. He was a strange man, this Claudin. Quiet, almost shy, but a brilliant musician. When Christine came from Villeneuve's office, Claudin was waiting in the passage. Good evening, mademoiselle. Good evening, Claudin. Monsieur Villeneuve will see you now. Thank you, mademoiselle. Good night. Oh, mademoiselle, uh, may I speak to you for a moment? Certainly. You, uh, you weren't on the stage tonight for the curtain call. Everyone in the theater seems to have noticed that. It's really quite flattering. Why weren't you there? What? Oh, please forgive me, but I... I've been here so long that you, that... Everybody, everything connected with the opera is so much a part of my life. Of course. But Monsieur Villeneuve is waiting. Yes. You weren't ill, were you? You're not in any trouble. Oh, it's impertinent of me, I know, but... <laughs> no, it isn't. You're very kind. And I'm not in trouble. Good night. Christine. Monsieur. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. I, I shouldn't have called you Christine. I'm sorry. Good night. Good night, mademoiselle. Come in. Oh, Claudin. Yes, maestro. Close the door, please. 
You know why I sent for you, Claudel? I think so, Maestro. I've brought my violin. Take it out of the case, please. Hey, Claudel, for some time now, I have sensed discord in the violin section. It was not until tonight that I definitely located the source of the trouble. Let me hear you play, Claudel. Yes, Maestro. What shall I play? Anything you please. Yes, Maestro. Wait a moment. What is that? A little song. A lullaby from Provence, where I was born. Oh, it is very nice, very charming. I, I've written a concerto on the theme. Yes, I... yes, charming, Claudin, but too simple. Uh, suppose instead you let me hear the opening movement in the third act of Martha. Well? It's no use, Maestro. Something's happened to the fingers of my left hand. I see. Perhaps it's only temporary, Maestro. Perhaps it will get better. I hope so. In the meantime... I'm sorry, Claude. I'm very sorry. You've been with us a long time. Twenty years. What am I to do, Maestro? I know it's hard, but no doubt you've saved enough to retire on. Yes. Yes, of course. And in appreciation of your long service, I shall arrange with the directors to have a season ticket issued to you. <laughs> Thank you, Maestro. There are things I can tell you now. Things I didn't learn until months, even years later. Laudin had no money put aside. He lived in a miserable garret in the Paris slums. He was cold in the winter and often hungry. What money he earned was used for just one purpose, to provide singing lessons for Christine Dubois. She knew nothing of his sacrifice for her. It was a secret known only to Claudin himself and Signor Ferretti, the singing master. My dear Claudin, if you don't mind my saying so, you're a fool. Signor Ferretti. For three years I've taught Christine Dubois and you have failed. Why? How can a man of your age hope to interest a girl as young as... Signor, please. We agreed never to discuss my motives. Very well. So now you have been dismissed from the orchestra. You can no longer pay for her lessons. Is that it? Yes, Signor, but I... I hope that you would continue to instruct her. For uh, just for a while. I'll have money soon. A concerto I've written. I've taken it to Monsieur Playel. It's going to be published. Yes, yes, I know. Every violinist has written a concerto. Then you'll go on with the lesson, Signor? Why should I? Why should I assume your burden? The girl means nothing to me. But her career means a great deal to me, Signor. More than anything else. I'm sorry, Claudine. Really sorry. I will uh, let her come a few times... Then I will tell her she no longer needs me. But that isn't true. Perhaps not. Signor, if you will give me just a little more time. You will have time, Claudin, when you have money. Come back when Monsieur Playel has bought your concerto. For weeks, Claudin haunted the publisher's office. But always it was the same story. Monsieur Playel was too busy to see him. One evening, just at dusk, Claudin forced his way past the manager, up the stairs, into Playel's study. Who's that? Monsieur Playel. What are you doing here? I've been waiting to see you since this morning. Didn't they tell you I was busy? Georgette, more acid, please. Is this the bottle? The blue one, dear. Pour it in the tray and be careful, dear. Monsieur Playel. This should be the best etching I've ever made, Georgette. Monsieur. Will you please be careful? Those trays contain etching acid. Would you like to burn the skin from your hands? I'm sorry, monsieur, but my manuscript... I must find out about my concerto. Georgette, would you mind giving the fellow his manuscript? You'll find it on the table if it's anywhere. What is your name? Claudin. Eric Claudin. 
Claudel? I don't see it. No, 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 it wouldn't be there. It's a large manuscript in a portfolio. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't know where it is. Oh, but it must be here. Well, if it is, it'll turn up. You might call again in a few days. But you don't understand, mademoiselle. It's the only copy I have. It represents two years' work. You heard what the lady said? Get out. But it was brought into this office. It must be here. It must be found. Did we ask you to bring your manuscript to us, Claudin? Perhaps some employee has thrown it into the waste paper basket where it probably belongs. Good night. Listen. That piano. That's my music. Someone's playing my music. I thought I told you to get out. Thief. You stole on my music. Thief. Help. Let him go. Let him go. You stole on my music. Thief. Thief. You're choking him. Do you hear? Let him alone. I'll burn you if you don't let him go. This is acid. I'll burn Thief. you. Thief. My work. My music. My music. It was mine. He had no right. You killed him. You! Ah! My eyes. My eyes. Ah! In that room, a man lay dead on the floor. And Claudin stumbled down the steps, screaming in agony, the acid burning into his face. Ah! Into the street he ran with his hands before him groping his way blindly through the darkness. He was seen once on the Rue du Jardin and again in a dim street near the opera. And then he was gone, lost in the black of the night. There was a search, of course, but he was never found. It was not a thing that was close to any one of us. It was something you read about in the newspaper, shudder over for a moment, and then try to forget. In a few days, it was out of our minds completely, for Christine and I were rehearsing a new opera. One morning, we were sitting at the piano in our home. Well, that's very nice. What is it, Christine? It's a lullaby of Provence. Provence? I was born there, you know. I've known it for years, ever since I can remember Sing it for me. If you like. Hear those bells ringing soft and low, bringing peace through the twilight glow, calling to everyone, night has begun. Lovely, Christine. Christine! Yes, Aunt Berta. Didn't you hear the door? Monsieur Dobert is here. Good morning, Christine. Raoul, good morning. You see, Monsieur? They call this rehearsing. Rehearsing, huh? Well, I'm sorry to intrude, but I must speak to you, Christine. But, but you see, I- I'm busy right now, Raoul. Anatole has been helping me. Yes, uh, to rehearse. Yes. Uh, monsieur is very kind. Well, not at all, Monsieur. I find it a pleasure. I'm Anatole Garon of the opera. Oh, I'm so sorry. This is Inspector Daubert, the Sûreté. Oh, the policeman. Police inspector, monsieur. 
Yes, of course. I've heard of you, Inspector. Your work must be very exciting. Oh, not half so exciting as yours, monsieur. It doesn't lend itself to self-expression. Christine, I'd like to see you alone, please. I'm here on business. With me? What business could Mademoiselle have with a sûreté? What is it, Raoul? If you don't mind, I'd rather Anatole stayed. Very well. Christine, do you know Eric Claudin? Why, yes. How well? I knew him as a violinist in the orchestra. Well, I met him a few times in the foyer on the stage or outside the opera, but, but that's all. He he acted a little strangely. Strangely? How do you mean? Well, I, I don't know. He just he just seemed eccentric, but, but harmless. I thought he was a rather kindly fellow until I read of the murder. What is it, Raoul? Well, he was a kindly fellow until he thought Pleyel was robbing him of his work. Then something snapped, and he became a homicidal maniac. But what has all this to do with me? Well, we found something in his room, Christine, that connects you with him. No doubt you can explain. What is it? This statuette. As you can see, Christine, it's the image of you. So that's what became of it. Be good enough to explain yourself, monsieur. Uh, certainly, that statuette is mine. Yours? Definitely, I made it. I intended to make you a present of it, Christine. How nice of you, Anatole. Unfortunately, it disappeared from my dressing room. Hmm. It's an extraordinary likeness. My compliments on your versatility, monsieur. Christine must have posed for this many times. I never posed for it, not once. You did this from drawings, monsieur? And from memory, monsieur. Extraordinary memory. Thank you. But it's a simple matter to recall Christine's face and figure. I'm sure you have found it so, monsieur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what was the statuette doing in Clodin's room? He must have stolen it. It's obvious. Is it? Speaking purely as an inspector of the Sûreté, I'm afraid even the obvious needs confirmation. But as a man, monsieur, I'm sure you can understand. Sitting there in the orchestra pit night after night looking at Christine, Clodin probably fell in love with her. You admit that is possible, no? Mm-hmm. Christine, did Claudin ever seek more than a casual acquaintance with you? No, never. Can you imagine so diffident a lover, monsieur? Claudin was barely 50. No doubt he lacked fire. No doubt. Christine, this statuette is yours. I give it to you. You give it to her? Yes. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll accept it as a gift from both of you. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. It seems I have the worst of this bargain. In the future, Monsieur Inspector, I detect you model. In any case, that was a bad clue. Oh, not so bad as it seems. It enabled me to recover Mademoiselle's statuette. Is, uh, is that your carriage at the door, Monsieur? Yes. Would you be good enough to give me a lift? Well, um, which way are you going? Oh, it doesn't matter. As Inspector of Police, I have business all over Paris. Well, in that case, au revoir, Christine. Au revoir. You've been most helpful, Christine. Most helpful. I hope you catch Claudin. Thank you. Well, you ready, monsieur? At your service. Well, after you, monsieur. Well, after you, monsieur. Thank you, monsieur. <laughs> we could laugh then because the horror had not touched us. We didn't know that in the caverns of the sewer beneath the opera there was a shadow darker than the surrounding gloom. The shadow of a man in a black cloak, his face hidden behind a mask. This was the man whose features had been burned and whose mind was on fire. Before long, that shadow was to envelop all of us. In 
a few moments, Mr. DeMille and our stars, Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, Basil Rathbone, and Edgar Barrier, will return in Act Two of The Phantom of the Opera. One way you can be sure of having the last word in an argument is to have an argument with yourself, as this young lady is doing, for instance. I don't see anything the matter with my skin, really. Doesn't look as nice as it used to look. It does so. It's just that the light over this mirror is so bright. Hmm. Well, doesn't Johnny Brooks always tell me I have a complexion like a million? Hasn't said so for a good long time. Well, he's been away at camp, Smarty, that's why. He's due for a furlough most any time now. Maybe you'd better start doing something about your skin. How about some real beauty care instead of that dip-dab-lick-and-promise kind of treatment you've been giving it lately? Maybe I'd better. Yes, I will. I'll try those beauty facial screen stars use. Active lather facials with Lux toilet soap every single day. If it works for the screen stars, it ought to work for me, too. Well, she'll find it does work. This gentle complexion care used by 9 out of 10 Hollywood stars. You see, Lux toilet soap is a real beauty soap. With lather so rich and smooth and super fine, it feels like a caress on the skin. Lovely screen stars tell you they take their Lux Soap Beauty Facials this way. They smooth lots of the creamy, active lather well in. They rinse with warm water and splash with cold. Then they pat their skin dry with a soft towel. Now, that's a very simple, easy care. But if you use it every day, you'll find that soon your skin feels softer, smoother, takes on a fresher, lovelier look. Why not get some Lux Toilet Soap tomorrow? You'll notice each satiny white cake is hard-milled. That means it lasts and lasts. And remember, it's patriotic not to waste soap. Use only what you need. Don't leave your cake of Lux Toilet Soap standing in water. And be sure always to put it in a soap dish that's dry. And now, Mr. DeMille returns to the microphone. Act Two of The Phantom of the Opera, starring Nelson Eddy as Anatole, Susanna Foster as Christine, and Basil Rathbun as Claudine, with Edgar Barrier as Raoul. There was a master key at the opera house, and the night we were to sing Amour et Gloire, the key disappeared. Other things had been stolen, costumes, masks, but now the shadow had entrance to 2,500 doors. He could roam at will from the sub-cellars to the very top of the auditorium where the great chandelier swung over the audience. There were some who swore they had seen this shadow flung on the walls of dim corridors or crouching like a griffon on the high balconies over the street. And there were some who swore they had heard mutterings in the deep cellars where the sewers ran black. And tonight... So tonight, it is Amour et Gloire. Amour et Gloire with Anatole Garon and the soprano, Biancaroli. Biancaroli sings tonight, not Christine Dubois. Well, we shall see. We shall see. It was strange the way it happened. In the third act, the libretto called for me to give Biancaroli a cup of wine. When she had drunk it, I thought for a moment that her face paled. She finished her aria and left the stage. But she was late for her next entrance. There was a wait. And then came the cadenza from off stage. <laughs> <laughs> 
I knew that voice. But it was not Biancaroli who was making the entrance. It was her understudy, Christine Dubois.
I was drugged. I was perfectly well during the second act. You saw me, Maestro. Madame Biancaroli, we realized If you, you realized I was drugged, then tell that police inspector there to arrest the man who did it. We all know who it was. Anatole Garon. I know nothing of the sort, madame. I am a police officer, not a psychic. It is my duty to collect evidence without prejudice. Haven't you evidence enough? Everyone knows Madame, that... will you be seated, please? Monsieur Garon, is it true that you had the opportunity during tonight's performance to place the drug in Madame Biancaroli's glass? Certainly, Monsieur Inspector. We all did. It becomes then a question of motive. The motive is very simple. Garon wanted to get me out of the way to make room for that... Are little... you referring to Christine Dubois? I am. You heard, Monsieur Garon? Oh, yes. Madame is in good voice and most explicit. Have you anything to say, monsieur? I deny madame's accusation. Do you deny, monsieur, that you had any motive in drugging madame? I deny that I drugged her. Monsieur Inspector, I do not understand your reluctance to make an arrest. You are not an examining magistrate. Can you substantiate your charge that Anatole Garon had a motive in drugging you and that the motive was Christine Dubois? Why, anybody with half an eye would be able to tell Hearsay you. Hearsay is not evidence, Then madame. I'll go over your head. I have influence at the Sûreté. I was drugged tonight to the point of death. And I insist upon the arrest of the criminal and his accomplice. And if you don't... Uh, one moment, madame, please. You've heard Garon deny that he drugged you. As the inspector says, there is no evidence to warrant an arrest. If you insist upon it and fail to gain a conviction, you will find yourself in a very difficult predicament. Yes, quite right. And no matter what the outcome, don't forget that your career is bound to the Paris Opera. Whatever scandal injures us or any member of the company will injure you as well. Are you suggesting that I forget the whole affair? Yes, for your own sake as well as ours. Very well. That is under certain conditions. I want a new understudy. Christine Dubois goes back to the chorus and stays for the two years my contract has to run. No, I won't permit it. If any such arrangement is my made, I'll go... My dear Anatole, I have not finished. I go a step farther. I suggest that we all forget that anything happened afterwards. For once, madame, I don't understand you. Oh, but it's so simple. Nothing happened tonight. I was not drugged, and Christine Dubois did not sing. What? Madame, there are always critics in the house. You will send word to the papers that no mention of hers to be made. You'll do nothing of the sort. It's ridiculous. Besides, what about the public? Shall we send word to the public to forget that Mademoiselle Dubois was a sensation? If you are willing to ruin the opera for the sake of Christine Dubois, that's your affair. But you'll either do as I say, or I will charge both of you with trying to murder me. Do you understand that? Murder! Madame Biancaroli. Good evening, Maria. Oh, madame, you were magnificent tonight. Oh, my dress, please. You really thought so, Maria? Oh, yes, madame. The best I've ever heard you. Especially in the part with Garon. The cadenza from offstage, it was so... Oh, you liked that, did you? Why, yes, madame, it... Uh... Yes. Yes, I was very good tonight. My dressing gown, Maria. Yes, madame. Ah! Maria! Madame! Madame! What's the matter with you? A man, madame. Outside the window on the balcony. Oh, don't be a fool. How could a man... Madame. Good evening. What do you want here? I'm sorry. I cannot let you see my face. You would not be pleased. Take off that mask, Anatole Garon. You do not frighten me. Madame, it is not Anatole Garon. I did not come here to frighten you unnecessarily. Only to tell you that Christine Dubois will sing. Tomorrow night. Oh, yes. You will leave Paris, madame. Leave Paris? You will see to it, of course. Yes, I will see to it, madame. Get back. Madame! Do you force me to reason with you, madame? I will not leave. Get away from me. I am sorry, madame. Ah! 
I am very sorry. Anatole. Anatole. What is it? Madame Bianca Roli and her maid. They have been murdered. The opera was closed for almost a week. And then from somewhere within the darkened building, a note was written to the directors. Gentlemen, the opera must open very soon. Christine Dubois will replace Biancarole, who chose to ignore my advice. Good morning. Yes? Is, is Christine at home? Yes. Well, may I see her, please? Come in. I'll tell her you're here. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, good, oh, good morning, morning, Christina. Christina. Aunt Berta told me you were waiting together. Did you amuse each other? <laughs> Good. May I Christine, have a word I wonder with you? If I... Sorry, monsieur. After you, monsieur. After you. Thank you. What Christine, I want if you going and I to say only... with the... <laughs> One at a time, please. Anatole? They're going to open the opera, Christine. You and I are going to sing together. You are wrong, monsieur. I'm sorry, Christine. They are going to reopen the opera, but without you. Circumstances connected with the murder of Bianca Roli demand that someone else sing the leading role in your place. Really? You may be interested to know, Monsieur Dobert, that circumstances connected with the murder of Bianca Roli demand that Christine does sing. Well, the police have changed that plan somewhat. We are going to draw the murderer out into the open by defying his warning. My men will be posted at every entrance and exit. And probably miss him. <laughs> Monsieur, I am aware that your profession requires a certain self-assurance, but aren't you going too far? Not at all. I happen to have a plan of my own for trapping the murderer. So you've turned detective, monsieur? I have. Well, very well, if it amuses you. I might add that my plan is strictly confidential. All I can tell you is that Lorenzi is to sing the role, and I am not in the least interested in your plan. May I have a word with you alone, Christine? Yes, that's what I came for. May I speak to you alone, Christine? But I... I'm going out. Well, my, my carriage, carriage is, is just outside. I, I'm not going right now. I mean, I'm going later. I'll, I'll wait. wait. Yes. Yes, we'll both wait. We were certain now that the murderer was Eric Laudin. The plan I had worked out took me to the home of a great pianist and composer. On the night before we were to open, I went to see Franz Liszt. Uh, very nice. But do you really think this Claudin could be tempted to leave his hiding place and risk his life merely to hear his own concerto? Played by Franz Liszt himself, do you doubt it, Maestro? Now, my plan is for you to play the concerto be between the second and third acts, and then... Well, when so they... many crimes have been committed in the name of music, it seems only fair to use it now to avert one. I am at your service, monsieur. Oh, thank you, Maestro. Uh, most exciting, this detective work. Most exciting. Well, it's more than exciting to me. I have the honor of being suspected of the crime.
Gentlemen, I have been very patient. Now I learn that Christine Dubois will not sing. Gentlemen, if Madame Lorenzi sings in her place, you will be responsible. Two are dead now, only two. There will be more, gentlemen. Many, many more. Lorenzi sang that night. Through two acts we waited, and nothing happened. An old worker at the opera house thought he saw a figure on the catwalk leading to the dome of the theater. It was the old man's duty to light the monster chandelier, a great heavy thing of glass and bronze, held in place by chains. When the police searched the catwalk high over the audience, there was no one there. We began to feel secure. Christine had come to the theater, but she was safe in her dressing room. When I entered from the wings at the finale of the second act, I was thinking only of the opera.
It happened. I saw the great chandelier begin to sway high above. It swung to and fro like a giant pendulum. Others had seen it, too. A woman in the audience screamed. There was no time to get out of the way. The audience below was frozen, staring up at the monster of glass and bronze. And then it came hurtling down through space. Get doctors. Doctors. Get every doctor you can find in Paris. Watch every entrance. Let no one in or out except doctors and the injured. Christine. Christine, where are you? She's in her dressing room. No, she's not in her dressing room. I've been there. I saw her, monsieur. She went down the steps. You saw Christine Dubois? Yes, monsieur. Yes, monsieur. She was going down the steps beneath the storeroom. I called to her, but she did not answer. Which way are the steps? Over there, monsieur. And there was a man with her. A man in a cloak with a mask covering his face. It's Claudin. She's with Claudin. Christine! Where are you? We pause now for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi, this is Porchlight Development Associate Mandy Katz. Thank you for listening to WPMT. If you value programming like this, please consider making a donation today at porchlightmusictheater.org. We appreciate your consideration and hope you enjoy the show. After a brief intermission, Mr. DeMille presents Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Basil Rathbone in Act Three of The Phantom of the Opera. Now, our producer, Mr. DeMille. There's always excitement backstage after an opening, and you're invited to join us for a chat with our stars when the curtain falls. But now here's Act Three of The Phantom of the Opera, starring Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Basil Rathbone with Edgar Barrier. Christine had gone with Claudin. The chorus that night had worn masks, and Daubert had arranged for the police to wear masks, too, so they might mingle with the crowd backstage. That was the way Claudin had enticed her. Thinking he was one of Daubert's men who had come to protect her, Christine followed him down the steps to the cavernous cellars. This way, mademoiselle. Hold tight to my hand. The steps are quite steep. Uh, are you one of the police? Where is Inspector Daubert? He's investigating the cause of the accident. I'll look after you. But why do we have to come down here? Why? Don't you like it down here? It's very lovely. Once you get used to it. Wait, please. Yes? Let, let me see your face. Take off your mask. Oh, no, 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 my dear. I must never do that. Never. You, you're not one of the police. Don't be frightened. I'll watch over you. I've always watched over you, Christine. No! No, no, you must not do that. You'll stay here with me, child, won't you? It's been so lonely without you. But you've come to me at last, haven't you? Sing to me, and I'll play. We'll be together forever. It's beautiful down here, beautiful. Come now, I'll show you. Come with me. This is the last turn. Just through the tunnel. Monsieur. You're not frightened, are you? Monsieur. You know I'll not harm you, don't you? How could I harm you? I've always helped you, haven't I? Yes. Yes, once. 
You, you've helped me. Of course I have. Bianca Rowling, you. She wouldn't let you sing. She didn't know how much I love you. But now she knows. But it doesn't matter anymore. Nothing matters except you and me. Now you'll sing all you want to, but only for me. You will sing and want to, won't you, my darling? There's a piano in the opera for you. We'll, we'll go up there, Miss you. You can play it, and I'll sing for you. But you don't understand. We can't go back, ever. It was I who made the chandelier fall. I, for you, Christine. But I warned them. I told them there'd be death and destruction if they wouldn't let you sing. Oh, come. Come, my child. Isn't far now. Look there. Look. Didn't I tell you it was beautiful here? You didn't know we had a lake all to ourselves. Look at your lake, Christine. You'll love it. You'll love it when you get used to the dark. It's friendly and peaceful. Brings rest and relief from pain. It's right under the opera house. And the music comes down and the darkness distills it. Cleanses it of the suffering that made it. Then it's all beauty. And life here is like a resurrection. I came here when my face was on fire. I found calmness in that dark water and comfort in the blackness over it. Then I heard you sing. I thought I died and that you'd come to me. And then the others sang and destroyed my heaven, so I destroyed them. You, you heard me from here? Oh, yes. Why, this is my, my private auditorium. Strange air currents circle these passages. They catch the music as it flutters down like a living bird in a net. You can hear the opera almost as well as from the highest balcony. I heard it. Yes, just as I heard it when I first came to Paris. You're not afraid anymore, are you? No, of course you're not. Then come with me. Come. Christine, where are you? Oh, Gerard, bring a lantern here. Yes, Monsieur Inspector. Here, Monsieur. Christine! One day, take four men, search the passage to the left. Be careful now. Do you have another lantern, Inspector? This is the only one left. You'd better stay with me. We seem to have come to the end of the passage. No, we haven't. Isn't that an opening in the wall there to our left? Yes. Yes, it's a tunnel. Keep close to the wall. Feel your way along. There's just a narrow ledge. The sewer must run through here. There it is. Just ahead of us. Do you suppose he might have doubled back? He might be upstairs. Why should he be? List will be playing the concerto. He should be starting now. Oh, yes, yes, that brilliant plan of yours. Christine! Look out! What happened? I touched the side of the wall. The rock came away in my hand. The whole place down here is ready to crumble. Look. Look up there, just ahead. Yeah. It looks almost like a lake. Come on. Christine! Christine! child. This is my home. Furniture from this storeroom, even a piano. Do you like it, my dear? Monsieur, please. Come, give me a cake, my child, and then I'll show you where you will sleep. Listen. Do you hear? My concerto. They're playing my concerto on the stage of the opera. My concerto. I'll play it too, listen, child. It's for you. Yes, yes, for you. Do you like it, my child? I wrote it. 
only for you. Who are you? Everything I have done has been for you. You understand that, don't you? Who are you? Take off your mask. No, child, no. Listen to that music. Listen. Take off the mask. I'll take it off for you. Why did you do it? Now you see my face. Oh, look at it. Look. No, no. You'll never live here now, will you? You'll hate me. A loathsome creature. Hateful, repulsive. And I wanted you to love me. Don't come near me. You'll see you've spoiled everything. Go away, mommy. Go away. Christine. There he is. Get back, Christine. Stand back. <laughs> you fools. You cannot kill me. Nothing can kill me. Arto. The wall. They're crumbling. They're going to fall. Come over here, quick. Look out. Get out in the passage, under the archway in the passage. <laughs> Are you all right? Yes. Inspector? All right. Slow down. He's still in there under the rock. My shot must have started the cave-in. Come, Christine. We'd better start back. But, but Claudin... It's no use. It would take days to get him out. He's dead, Christine. It's, it's so strange. He said... He said he wrote the concerto for me, a song I've known since I was a child. Who was he? He came from your district in Provence. Everybody there must have known that old folk song. Yes. He was almost a stranger to me, and yet somehow I, I always felt drawn to him with, with a kind of pity and, and understanding. His suffering and his madness will be forgotten, but his music, his concerto, that will remain. Christine went on to a great career and great fame. The night we sang together for the first time, the corridor outside of a dressing room was jammed with admirers. I had to force my way to a door. Excuse me. Excuse me. Thank you. Anatole. Oh, you were magnificent, Christine. Incomparable, beautiful, a sensation. <laughs> Is that all? I've just begun. It would take days and years to tell you how wonderful you were. We're having supper tonight at the Café de l'Opera. Well, I'm terribly sorry, Anatole, but, but I can't tonight. Why not? Have you another engagement? Well, yes. With whom? With me, monsieur. Oh, <laughs> that policeman? Inspector of police, monsieur. Well, how soon will you be ready, Christine? The carriage is waiting. I know Monsieur Garon will excuse me. How do you know? I have an idea. Why can't we three have supper together? Mm -mm. I am not in the habit of taking baritones to supper. And I don't care to be seen in public with the police. Christine, you'll have to make up your mind finally and irrevocably between the two of us. Exactly. Very well. Will you gentlemen excuse me? Of course. Thank you. Good night. What? What did she mean, good night? Well, something tells me, monsieur, that she has gone to meet her public. Hmm. Monsieur Garon. Would you join me for a bit of supper at the Café de l'Opera? With pleasure, monsieur. Think we can get through that crowd? Certainly. After all, who'd pay any attention to a baritone and a detective? Quite right. Well, should we go? Oh. After you, monsieur. Oh, no. After you, monsieur. A new season of the Lux Radio Theater has had a gala launching. 
And the first curtain calls of this season have been beautifully earned by Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Basil Rathbone. Thank you, C.B. Our congratulations to you on the beginning of the tenth year of this theater. You remember what Tennyson wrote? Men may come and men may go, but the mill goes on forever. Or something like that. <laughs> My recollection is it was a brook. <laughs> but as long as we have stars like you three, I'd like to go on forever. Let's hope Lux Soap does the same. See, I really couldn't get along without it, Mr. DeMille. It's a wonderful complexion care. Uh, Lux certainly cares for a lovely complexion in your case, Susanna. Thank you. Incidentally, Mr. DeMille, has Nelson told you about the chicken he has that lays the golden eggs? No, but I like about a dozen. That'll be $120, please. That's pretty high for just ordinary old golden eggs, isn't it? Um, what kind of hens are these? Who dons? Who what? Who dons? They're a rather scarce breed. Someone gave me two hens and a rooster, and now they're all over the place. <laughs> well, if the eggs are worth $10 a piece, doesn't it kind of choke you to eat one for breakfast? Eat them. Say, the hens won't let an egg out of their sight. They want to set right away. No, I hardly blame them. At that price, even a radio comedian wouldn't mind laying an egg. Uh, where, where'd the hens come from, Nelson? Somewhere around New Orleans. I plan to crossbreed the Houdans with my New Hampshire Reds and see what happens. And when you become the Houdini of the Houdans, I suppose you'll give up singing. Well, the way those hens are eating now, I'm going to have to sing loud and often. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. We made music at the box office tonight. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Rosalind Russell, George Brent, and Chester Morris in Flight for Freedom. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Hollywood. The Universal Screen production of The Phantom of the Opera in Technicolor, starring Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains with Edgar Barrier, will have its New York premiere on October 14th. Basil Rathbone appeared tonight through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studio. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. And this is your announcer, John M. Kennedy, reminding you to tune in next Monday night to hear Rosalind Russell, George Brandt, and Chester Morris in Flight for Freedom. And that's the radio version of The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, luxurious on radio, just as it was on film. And uh, I think that part of that had to do with the director uh, of the original film in terms of his approach to it. Why don't we talk a little bit about him? Uh, uh, the director, Arthur Lubin, uh, had uh, uh, he started in theater, young young gay man, started in theater, got some notice there. Somebody invited him to, to come west and direct movies. And he started off in the Republic uh, in Monogram, a uh, place where, where he uh, learned to direct movies fast. Mm -hmm. And that was one of his big skills. Uh, and so that kept him moving up the uh, ladder. And uh, he had his big breakthrough directing Abbott and Costello. He directed the first four Abbott and Costello movies. And uh, uh, he spoke very highly of them. They hadn't gotten to be cranky and, and awful to work with yet. And then, um, let's see, I think Phantom was shortly after that. Right. That he had become a very uh, big deal director, and Phantom is actually probably the classiest thing he ever did. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the film when I when I remember when I watched it, especially for Universal, which was considered there were a few uh, companies back then they called Poverty Row, and Universal was an old studio. It didn't have a lot of fresh ideas. It, it recycled a lot of things and and wore things into the ground. But I was very impressed by how 
opulent this film looks. Not only the fact that they spent money on Technicolor, but just you know the 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 massiveness of all of the sets. And of course, they were so lucky to still have that famous Phantom set from 1925. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think just a few years ago they finally destroyed it on the Universal lot. It had been there, I think, just until like about 2016. Yeah, I think they were still doing tours. And and for some reason, some stupid, stupid person at that studio said, we need more space. And they took the wrecking ball to the Phantom of the Opera yeah. set yeah. at Universal Studios, which is ridiculous. On, um, on a side note, I believe that the uh, facade for Notre Dame was destroyed. No, I, th- no, I think I'm wrong about this. I was going to say it was burned down for King Kong. No, no, no. The King, no, it was. You're thinking the King Kong wall right. was burned down right. in... in uh, Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. That's it. I'm confused. It's that big piece that collapses when the when the when the horse carriage is going by. Um, yeah, Arthur Lubin was was a pretty interesting guy, uh, and, and and taking over something like this. I'm sure that maybe they were hoping that they had um, another James Whale here. Um, yeah, probably, probably. This it. was this was about the only classy thing he did. Uh, after this, his next big success was uh, Francis the Talking Mule, <laughs> and he directed. Well, yeah. he bought the rights to that story, so he owned it, which was super smart. And uh, he directed uh, oh four or five of those, and then uh, he went on to television directing. Mm-hmm. Bought the uh, short story that was the basis for uh, Mister Ed. Yeah, and, and uh, he was instrumental in making that series happen. Yeah. Now this um, production has somebody playing the Phantom who uh, had not played the Phantom before or in any subsequent productions that I uh, knew, but he was certainly a familiar face around Universal Studios, and that's Basil Rathbone. Um, how, how does he play into the, the universal lore of... Uh, oh, well, uh, he was a wonderful actor. He was he was Hollywood royalty. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a, a mainstay at MGM for a long time, um, uh, played many kings. Uh, he was one of the best fencers on the West Coast. Was he an Olympic fencer? I don't know if he was an Olympic fencer, but but I know that he was the sort of uh, the bar of which everybody would would you know, set, if you could be in a scene fencing with Basil Rathbone, you really, you know, you were tops. Uh, because yeah, they- Errol, Errol Flynn would often have a double, but but Basil Rathbone almost never did. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he was the the uh, bad guy fencer in, in Mark of Zorro and, and uh, Robin of Sherwood. Danny Kay, the pillip with the pellet. Yeah. <laughs> the court jester. Danny and- Kay, from what he was very proud of the fact that he was able to keep up uh, with uh, Basil Rathbone in that fencing scene because they did right. doubles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and Rathbone uh, played many uh, kings and he had that wonderful voice. Uh, and and uh, he and his wife, I forget her name, threw wonderful Hollywood parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so he was royalty and uh, Universal got him a few times. Uh, most notably probably was uh, playing Dr. Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which was a very high budget um Again, part of the second wave of Universal horror movies with uh, Bela Lugosi creating the role of Igor, which is one of his two best roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Basil Rathbone, Lionel Atwell playing the uh, the inspector. And uh, Mel Brooks's movie, Young Frankenstein, is, is practically a line for line remake of Son of Frankenstein. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Gene Wilder does owe a lot, probably more to Basil Rathbone's interpretation 
than Colin Clive, I, I would think. Oh, yeah. and, and of course, you know, Basil Rathbone made the deal with the devil and became cinema and radio's Sherlock Holmes for years and years and years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you resist something like that? You, you can't. And he's wonderful. You know, when yeah. you go back and look at it, he's really wonderful. And, and his renditions on radio, he really committed to that character. When I was a kid, I saw one of his last movies, uh, The Magic Sword, uh, made uh, produced by Burt I. Gordon uh, with Estelle Winwood. Estelle Winwood and Basil Rathbone played dueling sorceress and wizard. <laughs> Rathbone was terrific. Yeah. He was scary and wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so he never phoned it in. And listening to this this recording here, I was I was struck. My gosh, he's good. Yeah, he really delivers on this part. He's going there. Yeah, and he seemed to alter that beautiful voice of his. And I'm wondering, like, what did he happen to be sick? Did he have a little laryngitis? But I've never, you know, it's rare that you heard him dig in. But he's on the radio, so he used the instrument that he had to work with. And I he, was really struck by how much. Uh, I mean, he's only in the, the in this for about five or ten minutes. Yeah, and and but really, uh, he uh, really makes a mark. He yeah. uh, with his emotional commitment and the uh, variety. Uh, and power that he's able to get from this little amount of dialogue. Right. And and I thought that as a radio show, uh, it really was a pretty good rendition of the story. When they get down into the catacombs later and he's got her and he's kidnapping her and revealing his plans, it's a little disturbing. I think that... Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, you have... Uh, this is a potential... You're, you're afraid it's a potential rape. Uh, that she's being abducted by a madman and he goes to great lengths to explain that he loves her and he would never hurt her. And it's a very, uh, there's a lot of pathos there. Yeah. And the end of it makes as much sense as it does in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that suddenly the whole place collapses. Yeah, really. But, you <laughs> know, Stephen it, King ending, yeah. I think it helps, though, too, in a way that when, when you're listening to something like this on radio, because you're using your imagination. Yeah. So those catacombs are as dark and, and terrifying yeah. and the lake and, and uh, you know, trying to figure out where you're going to. It really, uh, it, it, it gets you going. Yeah. Uh, I, I was really appreciative uh, because I certainly love Claude Rains, but I was really happy about uh, Basil Rathbone's performance in this. Um, what happened to universal horror? Now, you know, there was a first wave in the early 30s and then they came back in the late 30s uh, with uh, kind of with Son of Frankenstein, like you're saying, and then Son of Dracula and uh, the House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, you know, the Monster Mash things. When did it stop, and why did it why did it uh, end? Well, I, I think they exhausted it. Uh, the final the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, was uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. They brought back old Bella Lugosi and and put a wig on him and and uh, did the sky hooks on him. He looks great. Uh, uh, and uh, the Wolfman is in that movie, and the Frankens Glenn, Glenn Strange as uh, the Frankenstein monster, and even the Invisible Man makes a little Vincent yeah, Price as the Invisible Man makes a tiny appearance at the yeah. end. Uh, and actually, that's one of the best ones in the series. It's it's mm -hmm. really very good. It delivers both in terms of being genuinely funny and having some good scares. 
Mm-hmm. My understanding too, in terms of some of the research was saying that they were, uh, the original intention or one of the intentions as they were kicking around ideas at Universal was that they were going to do Abbott and Costello meet the Phantom of the Opera. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, makes sense. But at the same time, I think that the, you know, I don't know what that would have necessarily been. It probably would have felt a little bit close to what they did with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but you know. Well, yeah, they did Jekyll and Hyde. They did the mummy. They did uh, the invisible man and they did uh, a ghost thing. So they pretty much did everybody else. And uh, they met, meet Captain Kidd with uh, Charles right. and a few other ones like they meet. The, and then they kind of went and meet the Keystone Cops and whatnot. It seems, though, too, that maybe, you know, by the time, though, the Abbott and Costello meet series started in, in 1948 and then into the 50s, you were also getting a change into more science fiction and that that type of nuclear age, you know, giant spiders and shrunken men and right. things like sure. that. Really the bomb did. changed everything. And uh, while Creature from the Black Lagoon is sort of a throwback to uh, old style horror movies, uh, after that you get things like Tarantula and This Island Earth um, um, that are very much influenced by the, and, and, and what, the giant mantis and uh, <laughs> so many... So many things that are exposed to radiation and suddenly become very, very large. Right, right. I don't know that they were ready to have Abbott and Costello meet the bomb, but you know, (laughs) you never know. Uh, When did they split up? Do you know? Pardon me? When did Abbott and Costello split up? They split up in 56 was, was, was their last film. And again, they, they met a similar fate, which was that at that time, you already had Martin and Lewis come in and they had already come in and split by the time Abbott and Costello split. And then you, you know, you were having a very big change in comedy with people like Lenny Bruce and, and Mort Saul and other comedians of the fifties, certainly the second city starting in Chicago. And it was a very different kind of uh, comedy that was coming in Mike Nichols and Elaine May and people like Abbott and Costello and the three stooges, you know, kind of were hanging in there. Um, their time uh, kind of ended around the same time as-, as Yeah, it did, didn't it? Yeah, um, all these well. people that had earned their chops in vaudeville mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Phil Silvers, and then and then television gave many of them another start, Phil Silvers and yeah. the Three Stooges. Yeah. And, yeah. and of course, then you've got over in London, Hammer Studios kind of restarting the entire series up again, uh, doing almost film for film, the universal films with Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and their production of, of Phantom of the Opera. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of a dog, but, but yeah. they're, uh, Dracula and Frankenstein are really, really strong. They really hold it up. Yeah. They were really terrific. So it all comes back and it just comes back. So who knows, maybe we'll get another film version of, Phantom of the Opera, you know, that's not a musical and that's not... Uh, well, you got Andrew Lloyd Webber. They put that on film. They did. They dared to do that. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> greenlit it and they let them know. I think I'll probably always go back to this one. Well, thank you, Tom Mula, for My your pleasure. time. Uh, I love it's a hearing- pleasure, Michael, to nerd out with you. This has been a blast. <laughs> it has. Uh, I've always enjoyed talking with you and I always enjoy talking universal horror movies same here Uh, theaters across the country need your support now more than ever we hope you'll consider a donation to porchlight music theater today just go to porchlightmusictheater.org until next time on classic musicals from the golden age of radio i'm michael